You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. Well, good morning, good morning. How are we? Thanks, Lenard, for sharing. Um, I felt like there was just a, a connection, and I realized what it is. It's, uh, I'm an athlete, too. And so uh, I just feel like there was like a real close bond. That, why does everyone laugh? Every time I say, uh, but thanks for sharing your, uh, about your ministry. We love Freedom Fire and all they're doing, and uh, may they continue to grow our partnership uh, there. And um, as we uh, move into a season of Lent, the seven Sundays leading up to Easter uh, Sunday, I, I probably don't have to tell you this, but uh, if you didn't know this, Jesus is a global icon. Uh, Jesus is a historical icon. Um, he has more, been more influential than anyone in the history of the world, especially in the last uh, 2,000 years. Uh, there are 2 billion Christians on the planet who claim to follow uh, Jesus. Jesus is a big deal. Uh, more music, more art, more film uh, have been inspired by Jesus, uh, the Jesus of Nazareth. And, and so even though Jesus is this cultural icon, this global uh, icon, I, I, the, the, the question becomes, well, who is he? What did he really come to do? Was he just this kind of inspirational figure who loved people and showed them kindness, which is all, all true? But what if I, I told you this morning that you and I could actually eavesdrop into the life of Jesus and listen to what he said from the cross. At the end of his life, where he is on the cross, he speaks these seven words from the cross. And, and, and as we kind of eavesdrop into this, these seven sayings of the cross, you get a little sense of who this Jesus is, what he was about, what he was trying to accomplish, what this Christian movement really is all about. Because we may have all kinds of ideas and, and, and all kinds of uh, uh, thinking about who this Jesus is and what he really came to do, but there's something fascinating and helpful when we listen in to these sayings from the cross. In his hardest, darkest moments, what did he say? And as we look at for these next few weeks, these seven sayings from uh, the cross, this morning, as we look at the first words, his first words that he say are even more essential, even more important. He said a lot of things from the cross. He said a lot of things in his ministry, but these first words are there for a reason. These first words are highlighted for a reason. When I think of first words, I think of things that draw you in. I don't know if you guys read or you listen to you know, talks or speeches or even in the last, you know, 50 years or whatever. But I think of like first lines of great speeches. I think of MLK, I have a dream. Five scores years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon of light to hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But a hundred years later, the Negro still is not free, right? The, these opening lines, that, I mean, I don't know, but I'm in. Like, I, I need to hear more. I, I need to know what is going on here. Now, maybe if you're a fan of The Hobbit, 
Tolkien, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down or to eat it. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. I'm in, all right? How about... Of course, Harry Potter, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, a number four privet drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Or maybe a famous one, you probably had to read this in high school, Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. And our scriptures themselves, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning was God who created heaven and the earth, right? These first lines draw us in. These first words draw us in. They, they invite us to pay attention. And as we look at the cross of Christ, these first words of Jesus are inviting us to pay attention to say, who is this Jesus? What is he about? And what are these implications of what he's saying to us and saying to the world? And how does that shape how we live and how we go about our lives together? So let's look at that together. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, 23. Uh, 23 is better. Let's turn to Luke 23. I'm going to read verses 32, just a little section there, 32 to 38 this morning. We'll start there. So Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32, the end of Jesus' life, he's on the cross. And here's what it says. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. So our first saying from the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, and the audience here is really important. We, we see Jesus speaking these words, but notice something interesting, an important detail. Notice who he's speaking to. He's not speaking to the crowds. Who does he address? He addresses the Father, Father, forgive them for not what they do. He is praying to the Father in this, this moment of, uh, of ab absolute horror. He is dying on the cross, and in, in a few hours, he will be no more. And he speaks this prayer to the Father in this intimate moment. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is hanging between two criminals. Jesus isn't a rebel. He's not trying to overthrow the Roman government. He came preaching peace and repentance and reconciliation with God and, and one another. And, and he's accused of a crime he didn't commit. He is an innocent man being hung up, strung up in between two criminals. And just days before this, the crowds were singing Hosanna in the highest, are now yelling and screaming, save yourself crucify him, crucify him. And yet Jesus is praying to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How can these be the first words of Jesus from the cross? If we, if we consider the audience, we consider the context, we, he is praying for his enemies, 
People that have put him on the cross for a crime he didn't commit. And in Jesus' day, there were many different martyrs and different people that were, were killed for their, their movement or their faith or whatever it was. And in, in, often traditional martyrs would speak a curse on, his enemy, on their enemies. I want ill will for them. I hope this goes badly for them. And yet, what is Jesus doing? He's not speaking ill will. He's not speaking a curse against his enemies. He's actually praying pardon for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't know if that's what I would have been saying. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I didn't do any of this. I, I shouldn't be up here. I shouldn't be suffering like this. But I think when we look at the two sides of these phrases, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, it speaks to the human condition, doesn't it? Jesus heals the sick, he embraces the social outcasts, he eats with the wrong people, he upends traditional Jewish religion with grace and forgiveness and love and preaches a kingdom where, uh, that will last and everyone is welcome and it's motivated by grace. He tells his followers and the crowds that he must die and rise again for the sins of the world and yet nobody is paying attention, not even his closest Friends, how many times in Jesus' ministry does he say, hey guys, I just want you to know I'm going to have to die and I'm going to rise again, but I'm, this is where I'm headed. This has to happen, right? And they're just like, oh, got it, yep, made a note, yep, put it in my phone, we're good. But in his moment of crucifixion, in his moment that he needed his friends the most, nobody is to be found. Because we don't know what we're doing. The Jewish leaders of this day, the Roman leaders of this day, if they knew who Jesus was, if they knew what was really going on here, would they have crucified him? Would they have put him on trial with other criminals? Would they have seen his work and said, maybe there is something else going on here? We don't know what we're doing. And that's why grace is so scandalous that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would pray this prayer of Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't see the big picture. They don't see what I'm up to. They don't see what is going on here. And we're all just like the folks in this time and this day, confused, lost, needing grace, don't always know which way is up, falling on our faces more times than we'd like to admit. I was thinking about these examples of, of grace that, that just kind of wreck our minds and how we understand it. And there was a, a, a trial um, a few years ago, Botham Jean, and he was an African-American in Dallas who was shot and killed uh, by a police officer. I don't know if you remember this story, but his brother in the courtroom, um, after the, the sentence happened and this woman uh, police officer was sentenced, uh, Brant Jean, who was his, his brother, comes and offers forgiveness and a hug to this uh, police officer who killed his brother. And he whispers in her ear, I, I don't want ill for you. I, I forgive you. I want you to know Christ the Christ who forgives. And his whole thing was, I don't want her to go to jail for a long time because I want her to have an opportunity to know this Christ, this Christ who offers forgiveness. Now, you may hear that and go, amen, right on. I hope I would have the guts and the ability to say, if my brother was killed, that I'd be able to offer forgiveness. But the media had different ideas of how grace and forgiveness works. 
And of course, the social media warriors, the armchair experts that know all things about grace and how the justice system should work said, how dare him offer forgiveness to this woman? You're setting the whole movement back. This white woman kills a black man. You know what's going on in our country. How dare him, this brother, forgive this man? How dare him? And yet, that's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works on a different plane, has a different set of rules. It has a different set of values. The easy thing would be, I hope this woman burns. I hope this woman doesn't get a second chance. I hope this this woman has the worst things that could ever happen to her happen to her. And yet here is this man offering forgiveness to her, his slain brother, extending the same grace that he experienced by the same God. How can he not forgive if he understands the forgiveness that's been given to him? It's easier to be cynical. It's easier to be angry. It's easier to carry that around and say, they're the problem. Rather than receive this grace. Because why? Because we don't know what we're doing. It's this very impractical love that we see Jesus doing all these acts of, of, of kindness and forgiving enemies. And we say, well, that's not how the world works, right? That's for other people. I mean, Christians even do this, right? Even though Jesus said, pray for our enemies and bless our enemies and forgive, we just go, yeah, but that's not how the world works, Ryan, right? We got to hold it against people, right? We got to take out our enemies, right? Like, isn't that how it works? I got to get mine, Right? Someone's wronged me, I'm going to wrong them back. If somebody's cursed me, I'm going to curse them back. That's how the world works. You just live in an alternative reality, and that's the point. That's what the cross is speaking. That's the point. If you and I came up with how this thing was supposed to work, we wouldn't come up with what Jesus is saying from the cross, right? We would come up with curse them, kill them, uh, uh, take them out, get out our guns, right? No forgiveness, hold grudges, right? Till the day we die. And yet I've been a pastor for 20, I don't know, five years. And I will tell you the greatest cancer in the soul of a human person is unforgiveness. Hands down. People that are not able to forgive those that have wronged them, that have abused them, that have hurt them. And I'm telling you this morning, it's not easy. Believe me, I, I grew up in a difficult home. I grew up in a difficult situation. You've heard my story many times. I won't bore you with it this morning. But it's not easy to forgive those that have abandoned you, have hurt you, have done wrong to you. But what Jesus is praying to the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is to realize that how deep our sins run and how deep we need and how much we need the grace and mercy of God because we don't know what we're doing. And Jesus knows that full well. And I don't know about you, I'm just going to go with Jesus on this one. He just seems wiser and smarter than me, like in every way possible. Right? And one of my favorite philosophers um, that's no longer with us, Christian philosophers, Dallas Willard, used to always say that, is how come Jesus doesn't get any credit for being the smartest man that's ever been? Like, maybe he knows how to live a life, perhaps. Yet it gets no love in the broader culture, right? Like, oh, yeah, it's, it's nice. But, you know, Ryan, forgiveness and all that garbage, that doesn't work in the real world. Maybe it just hasn't been tried. Maybe because we've tried everything else and gone the other way, maybe we should try a new way. 
Maybe Jesus does know what he's talking about. Maybe he's saying, carrying around all the cynicism and all the pain and all the grudges and all the hatred, maybe carrying that around for your life isn't the best way to live a life. Maybe forgiveness is a better, better way. Now, as I said, this isn't easy. So let's look at just the dynamics of these, these first words, how they work, the ins and outs of them. Because I think when we hear these words, our, our presumptions of God and, and faith are, are, laid bra- are laid bare. Because Jesus is praying a prayer of not only forgiveness, preemptive forgiveness. What do I mean by that? Jesus isn't asking his enemies, are they sorry? You know what you did, right? We do that as parents. You know what you did, right? Why is your brother bleeding? You know what you did. Preemptive forgiveness. He's not asking, is there a contrition here? Is there a sign of repentance here? Is there a fruit of repentance? Is is there, I'm sorry, he's praying preemptive forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't even know what they're doing yet. I'm already forgiving them. And I think this is really enlightening in how we understand the dynamics of how these first words and forgiveness works. Jesus has done this before, just so you know. In Mark chapter two, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the, uh, these men come to Jesus with a, who's a paralytic in Mark chapter two. And in Mark chapter two, verse three, he says, and they came bringing him a paralytic carrying by four men. And, and then they could not get near him because of the crowd. So they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? Wait, they came with a paralytic, someone who can't walk. These four men come and they carry him in and he says, your sins are forgiven. Like, Jesus, we need this man healed. Like, we want him to walk. We know you can heal him, right? And what's so funny about this story, I think it's funny, is that he actually looks at the faith of the men carrying him. He's not even looking at the faith of the man on the, on the mat. He's looking at their faith. He says, well, your sins are forgiven. okay. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the point. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them. Also, they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. What is easier? Say you're healed, go, enjoy your life, or your sins are forgiven. What is needed more so in the heart of and soul of a person is forgiveness. What good is it to have our physical bodies healed yet not know the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ and know that what we ultimately, the stain that runs deeper, and we're all for seeing bodies healed, of course, yes and amen. It's, it's not actually one or the other, but what runs deeper, what's more needed, what causes more problems is embracing the forgiveness of God and knowing that that's what we need ultimately in our lives because we can't stand before a holy God. The chasm is too great. Yet here's Jesus speaking a word of preemptive forgiveness. These men come with a 
paralytic and they think, well, what we need is for him to be healed. And what Jesus teaches them is actually what you need is forgiveness. Now, now one other example, actually go back to our Luke text, Luke chapter 23. If you go down a few verses to verse 39, Jesus on the cross still says one of the criminals who were hanged, uh, Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do, not fear, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due ward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. They at least know that. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This actually is one of my favorite texts in all of scripture. Because I don't know what to do with it. And yet it's so full of grace. Here is this criminal on the cross next to Jesus. And all he says is, I don't really know what's going on here, but just can you remember me in paradise? Can you remember me in your kingdom? Like, I don't know what his profession of faith is. I mean, there's no signs of repentance. There's no signs of, hey, you know what? I actually killed a man and I, I need your forgiveness, Jesus. He doesn't say that at all. I don't know how deep his theology goes, right? I, I don't think he has a leather-bound ESV Bible, study Bible in his back pocket. I don't think he has that. I don't think he has the greatest Christian literature of just kind of understanding the ins and out of God's kingdom and the scriptures. It doesn't sound like that at all. It sounds like a simple confession of, can you just remember me? Like, I don't understand you or what this is, or I just know you're, you're innocent, but can you remember me? Like maybe the, the, this preemptive forgiveness is, is a way of saying that the forgiveness has, has been pronounced long ago over all of human history. So it's just a matter of having our eyes open and receiving the gift that is already ours. Like what is this guy's faith? It doesn't go very deep. <laughs> Gives me hope. Not to beat up Catholics by any means. But even in Catholic theology, it, it, it says that true repentance and granting forgiveness, there must be an act of contrition. A sign that contrition has happened. A sign of I'm sorry has happened. It seems like Jesus is actually even going against that. Because this is preemptive forgiveness. There's no signs of contrition. He's speaking a, a forgiveness over his enemies, over people that don't deserve it. There's no sign of the fruits of repentance at all. And if you're like me, this kind of rubs me the wrong way. Like, wait a minute, Jesus, like, that's not fair. Like, I need to see people suffer. I need to, they need to show signs that they are repented, that they're sorry, right? We do this with our kids all the time, right? Are you really sorry? How come I don't see any tears, Right? I feel like you're mocking me. Yet Jesus is doing something otherworldly here. Speaking forgiveness over people that don't deserve it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There are even their own sins. They don't even know how deep they go. They don't even know the wrongs they've done. They can't even see straight. Yet I'm moving towards them first. I think it also might be why Jesus, when he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Supper, in Matthew, Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Prayer, I should say, in Matthew 6, verse 14, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago too, but if, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Okay? But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your, your trespasses. It's a hard text. 
Like, is Jesus, like, I thought the whole thing was grace. So if I don't forgive, I'm not going to be forgiven? Like, this seems like a transactional thing. Like, so if, if I forgive them, then I get the forgiveness. I thought I already had the forgiveness. I think what Jesus is teaching us is if you understand the prayer, when we say, Father, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, is if you understand that there's already been preemptive forgiveness, if you understand there's already been someone who's worked on your behalf, who's already extended forgiveness, of course you're going to forgive other people. It's a sign that you already believe that this is true. It's a sign that you have been forgiven. It's a sign that you understand how this whole dynamic works. If you can't forgive other people, then you don't understand the gospel yet. I think that's closer to what Jesus is saying. Because preemptive forgiveness makes us real, real uncomfortable. I need to see signs. I need to see tears. Right? Till I forgive that fool who hurt me, who wronged me. Show me something. I don't hear it. I don't believe it. And then we're going to be the judge of how contrite they really are. Like, right? Okay. Yep. I saw a tear. Got it. Yep. That's true. Genuine repentance. Got it. Like, like that gets a little weird, doesn't it? Like, like I'm going to be the one. Here's the gift. The gift is, this is hard, but we let God deal with that. Forgiveness is about giving this thing away and not holding it against someone else. Just like Jesus didn't hold our sins against him on the cross, he takes it upon himself. He pulls it away from us. We don't have to hold it against someone anymore. Like that's the point. It's to get it here. Let God, God's going to deal with that. Like, like the fruit of repentance and, and, and genuine sorrow for sin and seeing that, like that's God's work. That's the Spirit's work. That's not our work. You don't need to be the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit's the one who convicts of sin, not you. But we think the whole thing is I'm the one that does that. Because you know what? If I just say it right on social media, it's going to convict the whole world of their sins. Like, I'm the spirit. Like, I have to determine how they think rightly about everything under the sun. God's really good at it. It's okay to just let that be. Let God be the one who works. And this is hard. I understand the abused wife is told to forgive and reconcile with her husband. How is that possible? A man watches his brother get murdered, and, and he's supposed to forgive them. How is that possible. And forgiveness isn't minimizing the sin. It's not minimizing what was done. I love that forgive and forget. You don't forget. You just don't. Someone's been abused for 30 years of a marriage. You don't forget that. It's still there. If somebody's hurt you or wronged you, entire communities have been hurt and wronged, you don't forget it. It's still there. But the difference is, you lay it down. You don't hold that against them anymore. Oh, the pain is real. What happened is real. But we turn that instead of wanting bad for them, wanting ill for them, cursing them, we turn that into a prayer of blessing. God, I want good for them. I see what they've done. They, they've hurt me. But, but here's the other, the other flip that happens because I, I, I think it's important, and if you go to like Psalm 103, Psalm 103, verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That in forgiveness, our sins have been cast away as far as the east is from the west. God doesn't hold those against us anymore. He's a compassionate God, right? He, I even love it. He says he knows our frame. He knows we don't know what we're doing. He knows we're weak. He knows we need forgiveness. He, he knows that, that, that we can't stand before him. We, we can't live unless that, those sins are forgiven. Yes and a, amen. But in the same dynamic, not exactly, is when we forgive other people is we remember that if our sins are as far as east is from the west, I'm called to not hold those sins against the other people as well because that same forgiveness is still available to them. Why? Because Jesus wants us back. He wants us in a relationship with him. Forgiveness is how that can happen. Like that's the beauty of the whole thing is, and actually when we do forgive, we're actually experiencing more of God's grace and more of God's kindness because we're going, yes, I understand. Like I don't deserve this forgiveness. I don't deserve anything. But yeah, you showed grace and you showed mercy and you showed compassion. You knew my frame. You knew what I was about. You knew of the millions of ways I stumble around and fall on my face. And yet you showered me and forgave me with grace and mercy. How could I not forgive other people? Because I didn't deserve it. What, they're not deserving of that same grace? They're beyond this prayer that Jesus prays from the cross? <clears throat> How dare we? How dare we? I'm not saying this is easy. I'm going to say it again 20 times this sermon. It's not easy. But when we see it for what it really is, we are the people that are quick to forgive because we see how deep the forgiveness of Christ has come to us. I think it's interesting when we see a tragedy or an injustice, how quick we are to go to the perpetrator, right? It's like, who did it? Who's wrong? Who's guilty? Right? We, we side with the victims, of, and many times we should. But we never think of, like, do you think that victim, maybe, or the, not the victim, the perpetrator, doesn't deserve some kind of forgiveness ever, right? But, like, I think, you know, the man in the courtroom forgiving that, that officer, like, he desperately, honestly, the, I've heard him talk and interviewed, like, he wanted good for this woman, he wanted her to be forgiven our sins because you know what? Like you think a woman who killed an innocent man is sitting in a jail cell feeling good about herself? Unless she's a monster and has no conscience. You don't think she's going to think about that the rest of her life? You don't think that's a punishment? <laughs> Enough? And then everyone else heaping on her. How could you have done this? How could you write? I thought we were a country of second chances. I thought we were a country of, of grace. Yeah, to a point. <laughs> If we see the right contrition, if we see enough tears, right? If we say the right things. This is why this goes so backwards to our inclinations of our souls and our own lives. Is That's why in Paul in Romans chapter 3 says, We have all fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good, not even one. And I, I don't want to brag, but I did go to seminary. And I studied the Greek. And all means all. All means all. We've all sinned. And here's another great word. And yet, 
we're all justified by the same grace. We get in the same way. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Go read Romans 3, and yet we're all justified by grace, by faith. We all have the same. It's the great equalizer. Sin is the great equalizer. You can talk about groups and economics and skin color and all those things that divide us, but the great equalizer in humanity is that we're all sinners that need grace, and we all get in the same way. We're justified by grace, by faith. It's not by works. It's not that you can earn it or do anything. That's why Jesus is speaking a word of preemptive forgiveness because we don't know what we're doing. We've all fallen short. So even when someone has hurt us and abused us, there has to be a moment where we go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm even in the family. How can I not forgive this person? How can I hold this against them the rest of their lives? And it takes time, believe me, brothers and sisters, those that have been wrong, any amens to that, right? It takes time. I'm not saying it's like, hey, pastor said, five minutes later, better forgive. It could take years, but it's what God would have for us. Because he speaks forgiveness to us even before we realize it, even before we deserve it. It's preemptive. So lastly, how do we, how do we walk in these, these words of forgiveness, this life of forgiveness? And when I think about the work of forgiveness, uh, there is a little parable that I, I cling to a lot um, in Luke chapter 13. And... Uh, it's kind of a strange little parable, but it's one that gives me great hope of what God is up to. And in Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells this parable in verse 6, the, par- the parable of the barren fig tree. Maybe you heard of it. And he says, a man had a fig tree planted in his garden or in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I, I find none, none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir let alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay, seems like a pretty straightforward parable, right? There's this guy, he's got a tree, it's not bearing fruit, well, let's cut it down, it feels like a waste of space. Get the vine stretch, says, hold, hold on here. This is brilliant Jesus subversive teaching that I, that I love. And we, we, we did a series in parables and actually went through this, but... Obviously, it changed your life. I know you're still talking about it. So, But what God is saying here with this manure is, you get, kids, you know what manure is? What does manure do? Poop, yes. I'm so happy she just said poop. That just made me happy. Uh, yeah, it's like poop. But in that magical poop are lots of rich, nutritious sources of life, Right? That's why you put manure down, right? When things are dead and we need it to sprout up, we, we lay down more. There's, there's a life source in this manure. So what Jesus is saying is, there's, hey, hey, all you see is a tree that has no life. All you see is a tree that has no fruit, but I am the life source that is going to put the manure on the tree in my way. Just give it some time. Be patient here. And this is what blew me away with a little deeper study and some of the words around this parable. When he says in verse 8, let it alone, it can also be translated, forgive it. Forgive it. All you see is barrenness, but I'm doing something else. Give it time. Forgive it. 
Just give it, give it another moment. Give it another week. Give it another month. Give it another year. I'm doing a million things. I'm bringing life into dead places. This is how we, we begin to understand preemptive forgiveness and forgiveness in general is that we're always looking for the, the sorrow and the contrition and we need it right here, right now. And yet when things look barren and things look dark, give it some time. God's life source is coming in different ways. Just be patient. Might come next week, might, not, might come 10 years from now. We don't know how God is going to move in those moments. Let God be God. That's the gift. We can give that over to God. You don't have to be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Lay it down. Give it over. This preemptive forgiveness is also why Romans 2.4 says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's when you see his mercy, when you see his kindness, when you see him dying on the cross for the sins of the world, dying on the cross for your sins and my sins, when you see God rising from the dead to restore all things, our lives and the entire cosmos, when you see that and it gets in your soul and it gets in your bones, guess what? It's the kindness that leads us to repentance, not the sorrow for the sin, but it's seeing his mercy. You go like, how can I not say I'm sorry? How can I not plead and run to the cross for his this preemptive forgiveness? It's his kindness and his mercy toward us, the fact that he's already extended forgiveness that causes me to run towards the cross. But until we see that kindness, we're just going to see God in transactional terms. We're going to see our relationships with others in transactional terms. If they do right, if they show sorrow, then maybe I'll be kind to them. Maybe I'll forgive them. But when we see his kindness, there's a good chance that we will be people who can forgive often and consistently, perhaps even with joy. Not easily. Isn't it strange? Have you ever had someone forgive you and you didn't ask for forgiveness? Hey, Ryan, I forgive you. Wait, what? For what? What did I do? It kind of messes with you. Ever had this happen? It's a strange experience. I think God's in, in that in some mysterious, beautiful way, showing us how forgiveness actually works. When someone preemptively forgives you, you're just like, whoa, 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 let's talk about your sins. Let's talk about that giant log in your eye, friend. My wife's done it to me. I've probably done it to her. You, you kind of go like, whoa, 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 hold on. Let's go through the list. What, are we, what sins are we talking about here? What if God all day long preemptively just, I forgive you, forgive you, I forgive you. Confessing our sins and repentance is really just embracing what's already ours. It's already there. It's just a matter of seeing it and receiving it as a gift, right? I forgive you. Wait, wait, huh? <laughs> Me? I don't need forgiveness. You need forgiveness, right? And let me just close with this and we'll take the supper together. Partly why we have a hard time embracing, accepting this forgiveness when someone offers it preemptively is because the evil that's lodged in the human heart runs so deep, it's beyond comprehension. It's something we can never fully comprehend. The, the, the cross makes no sense if this, is if this is absolutely true, which it is true. That's why Jesus says, for they know not what they do. 
It runs so deep. We're so conflicted. We're so confused. And we don't know how to, how to do this, that, that God has to make the first move because we'll be waiting a long, long time to figure it out on ourselves. That's why the cross is so countercultural. That's why the gospel is so countercultural. And, and what's so amazing when we think about putting this into practice, embracing these words, I want you to hear this new city, is that no one can do, say, or be anything that puts you beyond the grip of this prayer. You hear me? Nothing you can do, say, or be can put you beyond the grip of this prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. No one. The worst of the worst. The Hitlers and the Stalins of the universe is not beyond this prayer. And I know when I say that, a lot of you just go, yeah, but. If there's a yeah, but in there, we haven't got it yet. We haven't felt the weight of what Jesus is actually saying from the cross yet, even for the Hitlers of the world. That doesn't mean they're going to embrace it. It doesn't mean that you know, God's not going to deal with them. God doesn't sc- scraping sin under the rug and being easy on that. Not, not at all. The justice of God is that he sees the sin. He deals with the sin. But guess what? He's the one that deals with it. We don't have to. And he puts the sins on Jesus in his infinite justice to show his love and his compassion. That he crushes Jesus so that we, by his wounds, we are healed. Nobody's beyond this prayer. Nobody. And this prayer is beyond human comprehension, and that's why it's so sweet, and it's amazing how it should be. But see, my prayer for you is that these words spoken will be spoken with divine power and that we hear them fresh and new today and personal and life-giving There's nothing wrong with reading this prayer in the Gospels and saying, make it personal for you. Kara, you started to zone out, so I had to call you out. No. (laughs) The worst illustration ever. Kara, I forgive you, for you know not what you do. Matt. Jonathan, Leslie, I forgive you for you know not what you do. Like, like hear those words. Like, go home today. Go home this week during Lent just to hear those. Like, those words are for you. I don't want to make this just about navel gazing, but it's for you, but it's for all of humanity. Like, like when we encounter people, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, our family, even whether they know Christ or, or not to know, those words are for you too. Because all we look at is this whole moral behavior thing where they just got to get their lives together. They got to act better. They got to expect, you know, non-Christians to be Christians. It's like, hey, these words from the cross are for you. Make them personal. The spirit would, would make them personal and alive to you because it will change everything. It will change how you relate to God. It will change how you relate to your friends. It will change how you relate to your spouse and your kids when we realize that there's a God who offers preemptive forgiveness from the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So may the Spirit grant us the clear voice of Jesus this day.